0: If you enjoy Jerusalem Unplugged, you may also like to listen to Stories from Palestine podcast. My name is Crystal. I am originally from the Netherlands. I am married to a Palestinian and I live in Beit Safafa between Bethlehem and Jerusalem. I studied history and tour guiding and I produce a weekly podcast called Stories from Palestine. You can find it on your favorite podcast player or go to the website storiesfrompalestine.com.
3: Welcome to Jerusalem Unplugged, the podcast dedicated to Jerusalem, its history, and its people. I'm Roberto Mazze, your host, and today it's with great pleasure that my guest is uh, Omer Enaf. Omer just finished his PhD at the University of Tel Aviv, and is currently teaching at the University of Haifa and also at the Adassa Academic College in Jerusalem. But more importantly, he recently published a book in Hebrew, which I roughly translate as Defend the Goal. Uh, sort of a football and Arab Jewish uh, relations in British Mandatory Palestine, which basically tells us that once again, after the uh, wonderful interview with Nicholas Blinko, we're going to talk about football in Palestine, but this time focusing specifically, uh, you know, in the period of the British Mandate.
2: But first of all, Omer, welcome. Hi. Hi, Roberto, glad to be here.
3: Umar, my first question is very much about yourself. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and perhaps also how you came to work on football in Palestine during the British Mandate?
2: Okay, so um, I came from Middle Eastern Studies, uh, did my, my bachelor's degree at uh, the Hebrew University of Jerusalem uh, and then I uh, continued to, to Tel Aviv University uh, to master's degree, but at some point I just Skipped it and uh, went directly to the PhD. And I I had an idea. I'm I'm a sports fan since I remember myself. Um and and I thought maybe you know, out of academic uh, uh, writing, maybe I will write a book about my favorite team, which is I can now reveal in the start of, of the of the talk is a Paul Tel Aviv, uh, not so good team these days, but uh, you know you. you you cannot choose your, your team, the team chooses you. Um, and I wanted to, to write a book about it, not non-academic book. And um, along the way, I got really good advice that uh, from a professor who told me, why don't you write a PhD dissertation about football, try to to combine something that, that works. And then, you know, I started to develop the idea and I said, okay, I love football. I also have a lot of interest in the, Israeli-Palestinian conflict in the mandate period, and why not combine both hobbies and uh, to write something about it? Still, it, it, it was not written until I did it. I mean, the, the focus on this period of time and this Jewish, Jewish-Arab and British relations.
3: I think it was great advice to combine a PhD with a love for sport and football. So I wish there would be more because we the- Fascinating works. Uh, let me ask you something about uh, football in general. So, if we go back to uh, sort of the beginning of the uh, British uh, uh, rule of Palestine, how did football come to Palestine? Uh, do we have examples of uh, football predating the, uh, the arrival of the British, or is that essentially a British enterprise?
2: Uh, although the British would like me to say that it's a British thing, I, unfortunately, I, I have to say the truth. Um, like many other things in, in the Palestine culture, uh, football uh, come, came here uh, in the Ottoman, late Ottoman period, uh, late 1890s. I found the first place that football was kicked. to the Saint George School uh, in Jerusalem, uh, which you know has its English influence. Uh, so that was the first place, late 1890s. Also, uh, Raudat al-Ma'arif School. Uh, this year. Uh, If you look at the Jewish uh, uh, football, so we go a few years later uh, to the second Aliyah, uh, a Russian Jewish immigrant that came to Jaffa and played football there. So this is the first time the football came to uh, later Palestine. Uh, A few years later, football uh, uh, was played in Turkey and Egypt. Uh, uh, in Istanbul and Cara and Alexandria, uh, but in uh, football, started to develop this, those years First world war just make the whole thing collapse. And uh, because no one had time, uh, to play this game, it was too hard. You know, it was not institutionalized. It was just a hobby. Um, so, you know, it, 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 naturally, uh, no one. It, I found some evidence to uh, Jewish Arab uh, games during the First World War, but it was not so many. There's a well-known story about a young Turk, uh, Mustafa Kamal, who came to Tel Aviv as a young officer and learned to play football from uh, players of, from Jewish players in uh, in Tel Aviv. So, uh, yeah.
3: I must say uh, that I was ignorant of this story. Uh, but it's a fascinating one. I wonder if it's uh, some some sort of uh, in some historical narrative about uh, him, or it's just like uh, disappeared
2: uh, in, in
3: the last hundred years or so.
2: Uh, I think maybe if if someone wants to make this research, so you know uh, about uh, uh, Turkish president and the football skills, it, 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 it lasts till today. So maybe it, it can be a, a a nice topic to research.
3: Another PhD in sports. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm curious about something. So you, you said that uh, uh, football was obviously introduced uh, in the late Ottoman era and obviously World War One stopped everything. Back then, was football for children, for grown-ups? I mean, wh- what kind of sport are we talking about? Something uh, like what, that people were uh, sort of attracted to or was literally something
2: for uh, for kids? Also, it depends on which community you ask about. If you ask about uh, uh, the Arab-Palestinian community, it was just an elite thing, just you know, in, the, in the colleges and the, the schools, it was very uh, bourgeois uh, uh, thing to do with, within the, the Arab-Palestinian community. In the Jewish Yeshuv, it was more uh, uh, popular game, but on both sides, it was Yes, it was, uh, uh, I think, more of a children's game at that time. There were also adults, but mostly children used to play this game and they, they learn it in, in school. Uh, and, and yes, I think it's, it's, it's a good point that you made it. And those years, um, I, actually, until now, I didn't think about it, but I think you can identify the game, those years, with uh, children and and up to high school age. Yeah. Interesting. So,
3: I was wondering if you can tell us a little bit more how the arrival of the British affected the, the game of football. I mean, you use already the word institutionalization. So, this idea that eventually football became something official. And I was just wondering, you know, what happened after 1918? So, the British have arrived, and how, football, how did football develop since their arrival?
2: Yeah. So, it's even the, my Periodization of the research is 1917 to 1948, which, in other words, is the British era of Palestine. The mandate started officially in 1922, but 1917, the first soldiers of Allenby crossed the border and, and started to, to uh, climb north until December 1917 in Jerusalem, the famous entrance of Allenby to to Jaffa Gate. And I actually I found evidence, you know, in, in memoirs of British soldiers in 1917. They tell how in the desert, you know, near El Arish and Gaza, they, they came from Sinai up north and they, in when they didn't fight and they had some time to rest, no, no it's, a, it's a war. And it, although it's everything, you have some time to rest. And they play football. They play football in the sand, in the desert. We know the stories about football in South in Europe. It's the famous stories, you know, about the Christmas game and everything. But also it, it happened here in the Middle East, and the British from the first moment uh, uh, make it very clear that football is, is a crucial part. Uh, first, you know, because they are the the, the empire, the rule here, and also it's well, it's the place that football born. Uh, so you know, it, it's all other thing. They try they try to implement other sports here, uh, cricket and rugby not so great success, I uh, have to say, but football became the most popular game among Jews and Arabs uh, almost immediately. And uh, uh, Ronald Stoll, which I show you are familiar with, the hero of Jerusalem in the, in the, in the uh, British era, the first governor, the military governor and then the civilian governor of Jerusalem. And he, he, he tells in his memoir that you know, in the first days in Jerusalem, he, he traveled between the villages around Jerusalem and just gave ball, football to, 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 to the youth because he said, maybe if they will play, they will not go political. Even even he said, even British children, if, if you don't give them outlet to their energy, they become political. And, and we have to not let this happen in Palestine. That, that's what he said.
3: Ronald Stoll was a very interesting character indeed. And uh, I'm pretty sure he didn't like football. I mean, given that he was from this uh, sort of a, a, you know, elite uh, status uh, uh, from Britain, but he understood certainly the, the power of uh, playing essentially, uh, but also he was probably wrong about the politicization of, uh, of football, which he probably couldn't uh, uh, foresee uh, but obviously that happened, and I want to talk uh, about that later. Uh, I was just curious about, uh, you know, if you have any sense of the earlier players and games, how did the British, you know, sort of uh, organize the first uh, football games in Palestine, and whether they were like teams with mixed players, whether Jewish, Arabs, British, or from the very beginning, we have some sort of a sectarian and sectarianization of football. Okay.
2: That, that- I had a complex answer to, to, to this good question. Uh, the British start to, uh, first of all, after the war, so, if you know, uh, uh, they started some recovery of the football uh, institutions and, and Maccabi, I didn't mention Maccabi, which is the great uh, uh, and the main Jewish uh, uh, sports organization or federation in Europe back in the 1890s. Uh, and, and also here in Palestine was the first and only uh, 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 sports federation those years and after the war uh, the the branches in in, in Tel Aviv and Jerusalem uh, 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 were built again Uh, and this is is a very important thing uh, to understand. The British, they established the Jerusalem sports club for the the government officials, you know, uh, uh, the high commissioner of the first one, Herbert Samuel, uh, came to Jerusalem on July 1920, and uh, with him there was a lot of, of uh, 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 government ministries and, and, and uh, official, British officials, and they spent time in Jerusalem, and you had to find something to do uh, uh, while not in office. So Jerusalem's Sports was established in, in March 1921. It's it, Actually, it's a nice story because the inauguration of, of, the, of the club and the game, it was between the German colony and the Greek colony uh, in Jerusalem, it was a big event and uh, there were some very special guests, uh, uh, Samuel himself and Winston Churchill, uh, who came here uh, to uh, on this date, March 1921, but they both didn't show up for the game because they were busy in in, in establish other uh, mandate, mandate entity, uh, east of the Jordan River, uh, they were in talk with uh, Abdallah at the same time, so they didn't come to the game, uh, so they left Stores alone, He had to make a speech and, and to, and to, to uh, start this game, and in this game was a great example because it was a civilian team against military team, so the military, of course, it was 11 British soldiers, but the civilian team you would expect it would be com- combined for uh, Jews, Arab, British, whatever. There were nine British in the civilian team, one Arab priest and one Jewish player, that's it. And that's a symbol of what the British were trying to do and what they did in reality.
3: It's a fascinating story, but and I was just wondering, I mean, in terms of like, uh, do we have a sense of the quality of the game? I mean, was this like uh, considered decent football? Or people were just complaining and say that you know it was just like some sort of entertainment game and you know just one hour and a half, you know, watching a bunch of uh, young men
2: in shorts kicking a ball. Well, from the beginning, there were many complaints for the, uh, the, the British referees because until the 1930s, there were only British referees, not Jewish, not Arab, and it's great because you have some someone to blame and it, you. you always want to, to, to blame your boss in everything. So this is the British referee it was his fault. Uh, and I mentioned the, the Maccabi clubs, uh, in the middle of 1920s, the, uh, they had the uh, new friends, Hapoel, Hapoel club, which is the uh, workers association, Hapoel is, is the worker in Hebrew, uh, the third Aliyah uh, brought to Israel a lot a lot of socialist uh, workers. That, that also they search for outlets for their energies and, and from you know the, the hard work in the roads and, and in the villages in Israel Valley, uh, etc. So they established the Poel uh, uh, organization uh, first in within the Maccabi uh, uh, organization, but then they started you know the ideology split, ideological uh, uh, split, and the Poel uh, became the rivals of Maccabi. At the same time, I I mentioned the Palestinian uh, uh, concentrated within the the elite. This time, the middle of the 1920s, it started to go out from the elite. The first uh, uh, big club is the uh, Jaffa Young Orthodox Club, uh, uh, 1924. Uh, A few years later, the Islamic Club of Jaffa. We started to see clubs in Gaza, in Jerusalem, uh, Hebon, Nablus. Uh, all these places uh, we see Palestinian club. And also, uh, all the time it was, you know, uh, uh, two steps after the Jewish, uh, the Zionist sport institutions. Uh, and that was the, the state of affairs all along the, the Mandate period.
3: This connects perfectly with, with uh, what I wanted to ask you about the development of Jewish and Palestinian uh, football. Uh, were teams essentially connected to political organizations? Uh, did they follow, I don't know, particularly looking at the Palestinian community, sort of religious affiliations? So either Greek Orthodox, Catholics, uh, Muslims. And what, are, what about the Jews? I mean, are they all Ashkenazi Jews, or there is also sort of intermixing with, uh, let's call them, just Mizrahi Oriental Jews?
2: Yeah, it would. Uh... It was not the same on, on, on the, the two uh, communities. The Palestinian community was identified with, as like you mentioned, the, uh, the religious and ethnic uh, and affiliation uh, Islamic, Christian, Orthodox, Maronite, uh, um, you name it, all the, the mixture of, of identities here uh, in Palestine. The first uh, uh, club that, was, that said, I'm an Arab club, I'm a nationalist Arab club for all Arab, Christian, Muslim, was the Nadir Riyadiy al Jerusalem sports Club 1927, their uniform were the, what, you know, if you look on the last month, we see the flags of Palestine in, in, in Israel that were controversial in the Israeli discourse. So the uniforms of the Arab sports club in Jerusalem were this flag, you know, the nationalist Arab flag, which became PLO flag in the Palestinian, a, a Flag, so it was it, it really beautiful. It, I have a picture from the Palestinian newspaper. Really beautiful uh, uniform, you know, for who the, I I personally love to see uh, the, the the history of the what the players were wore in the on the, uh, the field, and it's it, it's great. Uh, um, so yes, that, that's the Palestinian side. The Jewish side was uh, much more political. Apoel, you know, is the team of 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 Mapai. Of of the ruling party of David Ben Gurion and Berikas uh, and Nelson uh, and later Beitel is the team of Jabotinsky uh, and the Revisionist uh, movement. So yeah, it was much more political, But also in the Jewish community, you have you had the teams of of the uh, ethnical groups. You know uh, 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 Yemen. Uh, and uh, Sephardi Jews from from, uh, Jerusalem, and they they had their team, but it was really uh, not strong and not very uh, significant uh, in country level. I'm
3: curious about languages. I mean, nowadays, if we look at uh, football in Israel, uh, I mean, even Arab teams, they obviously have to use Hebrew as some sort of a lingua franca for, for the league. I was wondering, is there a sense of uh, which language or which languages they used uh, amongst the players, in, you know, between teams, the officials? Obviously, you mentioned they're British, so English must have been very popular. Uh, were there language barriers between uh, the teams and
2: players? Actually, I have a, a good story about that, but I have to jump ahead to, to, my, to uh, the, 19, the Second World War, 1940, 1941. Um, so that time, uh, uh, you know, the Arab society, the Palestinian society, pretty much collapsed after the Arab revolt, 1936-1939. Uh, so the Palestinian clubs, uh, they joined the uh, Palestine Football Association, which was was Zionist, and the clubs joined, and you know, one of them, their demands, was that all the documents of the association will be translated to Arab, to Arabic. And of course, surprisingly, out of the blue, uh, the Zionists refused. They said we don't have enough people to do it. We don't have money. Blah blah blah. Uh, And it was uh, uh, it it hurt. It hurt because the the, it was like the Palestinian club felt once again that they're not part of this organization. No one cares about them. Uh, And and yes, it, it was kind of. Um uh, how do I put it uh, uh it's too bad because it was a chance to make something nice it would not change the future it would not uh, prevent I guess 1948 but uh, uh, I wish it would happen and it didn't
3: I guess we will go back later to uh, sort of the end of the mandate but this was definitely a good story uh, and also the complexity of football and how football also reflects a uh, uh, sort of daily life of, of individuals living in Palestine at the time and the various communities, particularly arriving into Palestine, bringing with them languages, different cultures and so forth. Uh, I'm curious about the politicization of football. Was it uh, immediately made it uh, political by the various parties or is there a moment in the history of uh, Football in Palestine and actually football was just a game.
2: all the all along mandate uh, period and maybe after, but I focused on the uh, period I researched, it was all the time, also you know, not politicized and, and also very political at the same time. For example, I, I have a lot of, of stories, so uh, a story for every, <laughs> for every topic. <laughs> Uh, in 1930, uh, you have the, the the white white paper uh, Passfield. Uh, no, it was uh, a great controversy uh, between uh, the Jewish community, the yeshuv, and the British because there were limitations about uh, the immigration and and and, and selling uh, land to, to Jewish people. So in, in a, the British, there was a fight in the in a Brit, in a game between British police, uh, uh, between the British police and Ha'Po'el and, Haifa and, and the high commissioner decide, decided, it was the chancellor then, he decided to ban all civilian teams in Palestine. The British, British will not play against any, police any, uh, they say civilian, they, they meant Jewish teams. So there was one Saturday, there was supposed to be a game in Haifa between Apoel Haifa and, and the other uh, uh, British team. And the British team didn't arrive, arrive because of the ban. So the Jewish team didn't know what to do. They were in the game, you know, they, they, they put the uniform, they, they waited to start play, Why did, what, what is the solution? The closest team was the Arab club of Haifa. So they invited them and they came quickly. And there was a game between uh, Apoel Haifa and the club uh, Itihad. Uh, from Haifa, and at the same time, the Palestinian leadership also banned the the, the, the Zionist leadership. So, uh, you know, you see, for one hand, you see the the, the ban and all the influence how the, the politics uh, enters the field, uh, and you it, you cannot say you know, it's it just one, it's one thing, but the other end here, you see, Jews and Arabs play like, together. Uh, although, despite this uh, uh, conflict, and this, this is just one example for uh, uh, how it worked worked most of the time. Of, of course, there were times you know of conflict and violence that Jews and I did not meet on the game. it was uh, it was not realistic and 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 it was just uh, too hard to to accomplish.
3: I want to skip ahead a little bit because you just mentioned something very important. I mean, in your book, you talk about also the relationship between football and violence. And I was wondering to what extent uh, football mirrored the events uh, that unfolded in Palestine. So in 1920, you know, the Nabi Musa riots, and then 21 Jaffa, 29, obviously uh, the Wailing War riots, and then the Arab Revolt, 36 to 39. Uh, did football follow the same sort of pattern? I mean, was it influenced or people? Maybe kept football as an arena for entertainment despite uh, the, the eruption of violence?
2: Uh, I'm sorry, but again, my answer is both. Uh, I actually wrote an article and it's in the book about uh, 1929 uh, riots uh, in, in Palestine. Uh, no, not many know, but, but the, the violence in Jerusalem began on a football field. Uh, yeah, in, in August 17, 1929, uh, 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 Jewish uh, children played uh, uh, in the field, and the ball was kicked to to a uh, 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 garden of, of some Arab salah uh, uh, in Lifta, began a fight, a, a Jewish boy stabbed and killed a, a few days later. It started on the football pitch, you know, the same football pitch all the year before that, 1929, there were so many games within Jewish team and Arab team and British team. And, and just until August, it was actually 1929, it was the best team, best year, sorry, uh, 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 of Jewish-Arab cooperation in football. Although, you know, there was a lot of tension uh, around the Western Wall uh, uh, all this year and then it erupted in, 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 uh, uh, in, in August. But despite this, there were great relations between Jews and Arabs uh, during this time. But you know, if, if you look on the uh, uh, Arab revolt, so we, you look at a lot of, of players, Jewish and Arab. Uh, you look at them, you know, they're they're fit, they're in good shape, uh, they know how to uh, to run. Uh, so yeah, they were part of the military uh, effort uh, on both sides, and you can find there was a story that they found explosive in the uh, uh, Islamic club in Jaffa. They, they looked, they searched inside the club and they found inside the football uh, shoe explosive. <laughs> it was just one story, but you, you cannot separate violence and football during this time. No, t- today, football players are not join the army. The, in Israel, they, get, you know, they, 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 just, uh, they don't do it uh, all around the world, uh, of course. But back then, because they, didn't, they were not professional, they didn't get paid for, for football, so they had to, to make a living for, uh, for military activity.
0: Hold up.
3: So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash
2: achieve today.
3: But that's fascinating. And I must admit, I didn't know that uh, Israeli professional football player would
2: actually skip the army. So uh, it's a new piece of knowledge. Um, no, they're not necessarily skip, but, you know, they're, not, they're definitely not uh, holding a gun and go to fight in the border
3: let's say a different kind of service, an alternative one. I'm curious about, uh, you know, this idea of uh, institutionalizing football. And so I was wondering when did the Jewish and the Palestinian uh, sort of communities began to actually form organizations and what kind of organizations they formed uh, and also, you already mentioned that obviously there were contacts between the communities, and I was wondering if these organizations, uh, you know, try to cooperate or maybe even organize games together, or from the get-go, they just uh, operated separately?
2: Okay, so, so uh, uh, the Zionist sports uh, uh, institutions were ahead of the Palestinian one, and there was a uh, uh, in nineteen the goal as no as other aspects of Yeshuv and what they Yeshuv tried to, to try to be a state at some point. So uh, in from an institutional perspective. So they were trying to, to to establish a Jewish Zionist uh, association, football association. And they did in nineteen twenty seven. The big challenge was you know to make peace between Apoel and Maccabi. That was the big rivalry. It was more housed than, than the Jewish-Arab or the, the Jewish-British. It was really big controversy. Uh, uh, and and it, they, they made it. But it was a problem, because if you want to be a part of FIFA, the International uh, uh, Federation of Football, till today, so you have to prove to FIFA that you represent all people of Palestine uh, with no Jewish, Palestinian, whoever lives here. So what what they did? Uh, the, the founder of, of the association was Yosef uh, Yekutieli. He was a big uh, big dreamer. He, he wanted to be, bring the Olympics to Jerusalem. Uh, uh, it didn't happen, but he did form the the Maccabiah, the first Maccabiah, the second Maccabiah. Was really he, he did great things. And on the way to do that, one of one of the was the establishment of the uh, Jewish of the uh, Palestine Football Association. And he knew he had to convince uh, Arab representatives to be a part of the association. So what he did, he knew Arabic very well, he he served in the Ottoman army uh, in First World War as a a, a sports teacher in Nablus. He knew Arabic, he worked with Arab because uh, uh, it was a daily job uh, in the uh, electricity company. Um, And he approached his friend, uh, some uh, notable uh, uh, Arab from Jerusalem, and he made him convince the secretary of the Arab sports club in Jerusalem, Ibrahim Salim Nuseiba, the the famous uh, Nuseiba family. He came to the the first meeting of of the association in 1928 in Jerusalem. He came to the meeting, he sat there. He didn't say a word. It was the first and the last time he came, but he signed on the paper and the association Six months later, was a part of FIFA. By the way, the the, the recommendation to the acceptance was from Egypt. Egypt was the the, the groom of the of the of the Palestine uh, Football Association, and that's uh, that's a nice story. Of course, you can guess what happened. The Palestinian didn't feel part of this association, and also we're talking about the late 1920s, the start of 1930s. Uh, you know, the, the nationalistic. Uh, 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 fillings in in Palestine were were, uh, uh, rise, and the Palestinian uh, Sports Federation uh, established in 1932, uh, a competition to the other uh, uh, association. Uh, And yes, of course they didn't play one against each other. It was not some Arab club stayed in the Palestinian in a Palestine uh, Sport Association, the Zionist one, it took time to, to move to the other one, but the Palestinian, uh, uh, the Palestine Sport uh, uh, Federation uh, collapsed in the revolt, as I mentioned uh, earlier. 1938, it just stopped being, uh, and the, the Arab club stayed with, without uh, institution, and they didn't have choice, the they the, uh, uh, joined again uh, the Palestine
3: uh, football association. You also already mentioned Josef Yukutieli who is a very, very uh, interesting character. I mean, this, this guy shows up in many ways when we talk about uh, sports. Um, and he's also connected to the sort of the international dimension of football, which you discuss in your book. And so I was wondering if you can actually place Palestinian and Jewish football within the larger international context. You mentioned games with Egypt, but did these teams uh, play with uh, you know teams of other uh, countries? How did they interact with each other?
2: Yes, so basically, the, the you know the 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 Jewish sportsmen, uh, also you no know, the the secretaries and the coaches and the players, most of them came from Europe, from uh, Central Europe, Central Europe, East Europe. And the the goal, the goal all the time was to play against European teams because they want to feel part of the most advanced football they they can. And European football was better than the Middle Eastern one until today. Um, so the, the 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 goal all the time was to connect with uh, the uh, the European teams, but it was pretty hard because to travel to Palestine, uh, you know, uh, to sail. Uh, take weeks, it's expensive and, and it's it, it not happened so it, so often. It, 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 it's a story, it is a, it, it's a big thing to do, but it's really simple to play against a team from the neighborhood, Egypt, which is the most developed sports country in the region because the the, the early British influence there. Uh, and so Egypt was the goal, but also Egypt not all the time wanted to, to to uh, contact the Zionist uh, institutions because you know they were better, so they they, they also aimed to uh, uh, Europe. So it's not Egypt. There were very good relations with Egypt, and and there were the, uh, uh, maybe if we have time we talk about the World Cup uh, uh, qualification stage in 1934. Uh, Palestine against Egypt, two games, seven one in Cairo, four one in Tel Aviv, both for Egypt no need to say um but uh, uh i want to start, to talk also about lebanon and syria it was really if you think about uh, let's think about a club from haifa it's easier for for the players to go to you know get on the, the train and travel to beirut or or even damascus than to go to jerusalem uh, it, it and the, the borders are open. We're talking about uh, mandatory times, uh, French, British mandates in uh, Lebanon, Syria, Palestine, France, Jordan. Uh, so, yes, that, 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 uh, it was, uh, uh, there were very good relations. Uh, Lebanese teams came to, to Palestine, Palestine uh, uh, Zionist teams traveled to, to Beirut, Damascus. But the problem was that, that when you have two associations here, so the Egyptians and the Lebanese are in problem because they want to play against the Zionists because they have very good connection. And they, they, they have no reason not to, to, to connect with them, but you know, the, the, the Palestinian uh, uh, nationalists uh, told them that it's not okay. They're hurting. They're, they're, uh, uh, undermining the, the Arab national uh, struggle and how they can play against the Zionists, it, it, it's unbelievable. That they do it. So it, the, the one problem in problem and the there the were cases where uh, Lebanese or Egyptian teams came to a village. They played Jewish teams in Jerusalem and, and, and Tel Aviv and Haifa, and the mufti uh, got mad. And the day after, they just organized from nothing again again Palestinian team, that, that everyone everybody will be satisfied. Uh, and it was not so convenient uh, situation. in 1935, it stopped. The, the relations between the Jewish team and, and the Arab teams from the region stopped because they had to choose. They didn't have to choose, they have to choose someone and the, naturally they chose the Palestinian side. Uh, the relations got better again during World War II because uh, the Jewish, Jewish Arab relations in Palestine were better. Uh, but yeah, it, was a, it was a great part of the development of the football here uh, the, the relations with the international arena
3: I have a million dollar question. Uh, given the current status of uh, arab uh, Israeli relations, particularly some of the Arab countries that are for what other reasons getting closer to Israel, do you ever expect a game between I don't know Israel and Egypt or Israel and uh, Saudi Arabia
2: or uh, the Emirates? The short answer is no. <laughs> now, if you, if you remember the last decade, uh, Muhammad Salah, uh, it was not, it, not the big star of Liverpool today. He was the player of, of uh, football club ST Basel. He played in Tel Aviv against uh, Maccabi Tel Aviv in the qualification of the Champions League. And he had a problem. He didn't want to come. He didn't want to come to Israel. But they forced him to do it. So he came. And there's a movie, there's, it's a great scene. You know, at the start of the game. Players shake hands from both teams. He didn't shake hands. He did a fist like this, and, and he didn't, and he gave it to all the players of Maccabi. It was his protest, of course. The big protest is that he scored goals that uh, help his team to win and to eliminate Maccabi Tel Aviv, uh, which I'm not sorry for. But uh, it was a uh, 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 one example. Maybe with the goal states, it will be different because. You know the people in the UAE or uh, Bahrain or whatever they don't have the same hate uh, that Egyptians have toward Israel in terms of you know their education and their history. Israel, Israel and Egypt you know go way back in rivalry and everything. Uh, so I have to be pessimistic uh, about it, unfortunately.
3: I just want to ask you something about uh, um, you know going back to the question of, uh, of, of violence. So obviously the relationship between football and violence is a complicated one because it's about uh, crowds, it's about players themselves, and sometimes it's about the politics behind the various football teams. And I was wondering if you have uh, perhaps examples of uh, various forms of violence that developed uh, uh, under the British in Palestine between uh, uh, teams but also between, you know, clubs uh, as, you know, Palestinians and Jewish uh, clubs.
2: Yes, you have know, some very uh, daily stories, you know, violence between fans, uh, uh, between crowds, that are throwing stones and, 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 and bottles and everything, which is, yeah, it happened, it, to be honest, it happened more be, uh, uh, between Jews and, and British, British and Arab, uh, much more be, than between Jewish and Arab teams, I must say. The parents was kept out of this of, of, of the field uh, most of the time. But I have some interesting story. I, I go back again to 1929, uh, A Tel Aviv, uh, the socialist, the worker team, the, uh, well known. Uh, they had a player named Sim Kinkis. He was uh, also a policeman. He also was a member of the Haganah organization. Uh, he played for the police team with, with the Arab players. he played in a Tel Aviv. In 1929, he is he, a policeman standing in, in, uh, uh, in the road between Jaffa and Tel Aviv. And he see his friend uh, uh, killed in the Arab attack on Tel Aviv the same day. He just took his gun, uh, ran inside Jaffa, and killed a Palestinian family and he was sentenced to death. Uh, it didn't happen. Uh, he got released after six years, you know, in the, uh, uh, it was the 70th birthday of, of George the Fish. Uh, I think they, they just released uh, a lot of prisoners. He didn't die, He became kind of a hero, but in the Zionist narrative, he got, he, he was forgotten because I think it, it was not something to be proud of. He, he assassinated a family with no reason, although you know it, it was inside in the context of violence, uh, tough violence uh, in Tel Aviv and Japan, all Palestine. But it, it's just one example of, of, of the, the connection. I, I wrote about it a lot in the book, specific on this. Level. The, he had a cooperation with Arab in the police uh, with his team in Apoel. I, I tried to examine what he felt, what 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 was the main uh, uh, factor what made him uh, to do what he did and uh, and i tried to, to 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 figure it out because it, it, today we can, we not see we don't see this cases we don't see a football player that's that holding a gun as we talked about it earlier then it was part of, of the life uh, it was a national struggle struggle between two communities uh, and it's hard to, to separate between the, the, the political struggle and football. Uh, another example is a British officer, uh, British policeman, uh, Raymond Caprata, which was also a, a fantastic football player, fantastic. One of the best. He played with, also with Hinkis in Nepal, Tel Aviv, and the best British team. And he was the commander of the police in Gabon. Gabon was the most horrifying massacre in, in 1929. It was just terrible place to be and he was the commander there and he was blamed by the jewish community that he didn't do enough the british uh, the british praised him for he he did prevent uh, one case he killed the arab uh, that attacked and tried to to rape a a jewish uh, girl but you know all all the side blamed him Uh, typically you know uh, the british felt felt both Jewish and Arab are blaming them in the situation. And he was a great case study for that. He, he, I think he, he, he made a record because in two times, in the difference of 17 years, Jewish and Arab tried to kill them separately. <laughs> so that's something to be pr- proud of. Uh, and, and they asked them if which of the community preferred sell For Arab, or pro-Jewish, and said, leave me alone. I'm pro-British.
3: Which makes sense. Yeah. I have a couple of more questions. And one is very much picking up on an article. Uh, and I think there are two versions, one in Hebrew, and one in English, uh, that was published, in, uh, published on Aretz, discussing, basically, your book, and mentioning the question of Beitar Jerusalem, and essentially, if I. Summarize it correctly, the argument was that uh, uh, at some point uh, Arab teams were kind of eager to admit Beitar Jerusalem into their own league, which I found it fascinating. And I was wondering, if, first of all, you can tell us a little bit more about this club, which is uh, for a variety of reasons, probably not very good reasons, but certainly very famous, uh, not just in Israel, but outside Israel, too. And also, you know, a little bit about uh, the, the story, I mean, the relationship between Beitar and other clubs.
2: Yeah, okay, so I need to say that uh, also in my book, you can see, of course, in, in Arak, the, the, the headline was about Beitar Jerusalem. I understand that, I, I, it's, it's, okay, that's that, that journalism. But I have to say the main story of Beitar during the period is Beitar Tel Aviv. Today, this theme is, is not significant, But Betar Tel Aviv, it was the most famous uh, uh, team of Betar, Betar is uh, uh, the movement of the revisionist Jabotinsky. Uh, Today, it's the the Likud party, it's uh, today's version of of this movement. And Betar Tel Aviv became the best team in Palestine in 1940. It was just combined. Consequence, consequences and, and it just became the best team, but they had a problem because Bakabi and Apoel, which had continuous fight between them, they didn't want Beitar to be part of, of this fight. They wanted to leave them out of this, so Beitar was left out. And at the same time, if you remember, the Arab club joined the association again in 1939, 1940, in World War II. So you have Beitar and you have the Arab-Palestinian club, both are neglected by Apoel and Maccabi from the association. So they find themselves in kind of alliance, kind of, not, it's not alliance because Beitar had difficulties to cooperate with Arab. Although, you know, the ideology of Zabutinsky, uh, you know, it we it, it, know the relations uh, to Arab is very respectful. And and not as you know it can, what can people uh, maybe uh, think today? Uh, Jabotinsky th- thought that the Arabs should be uh, equal and have rights and be a part of of, of the, uh, the Jewish state. But so Beitar uh, did cooperate with Arab uh, teams and uh, Beitar children specifically. They, they were not so good team in 1930s. They, just, they began to be. Uh, important in the in mid, let's say 1944, 1945. And then they, I found that the last game between the official game between Jewish team and Arab team in Palestine before 1948, is between El Jerusalem and uh, the jani Club in uh, Jerusalem in 1945. And on that time, El Jerusalem got an offer from, from the Palestinian, Palestine Sports Federation to join them. I cannot say how much serious it was. And it was not so close to happen because they although they did want to have to be part of the Zionist uh, association, they always, uh, they, it was not a question, they always preferred the national uh, uh, interest and it was not a question at all. But I, I do mention that in 1946, the Palestine Sports Federation tried to uh, be accepted to FIFA uh, and because they want also recognition, it didn't succeed, of course. Uh, no surprise. FIFA said Palestine needs one association and work it out between you two, don't bother us. Uh, but Beitar, representative in the Zionist Association, they were angry and they said to Apollo and Maccabi, It's because of you. You left them out, the Palestinians. If you Will give let them be in and given the place that they deserve. They will not go to FIFA and ask to be recognized as other as uh, association here in Palestine. It's your fault. You don't know and you don't understand that you have to to, to let them be included, not excluded. So it, it I think if you look at it from today's perspective, it's kind of interesting. It's not surprising to people who uh, uh, know and, and research the period. It's not so surprising, but in today
3: today's perspective, it is. Yes, I guess in today's perspective, when you look at Beitar, it, you know, it, it's completely different. Um, and actually, I just want to add here that I, I recently started a new research into Beitar because I found out that uh, uh, actually members of a Beitar uh, football team trained in Italy at the Porto of Civitavecchia, so close to Rome, sponsored by the regime of Benito Mussolini. And some of these members eventually they're also trained uh, trained with the Italian Navy uh, and eventually became uh, officers of the sort of the newly created uh, Israeli Navy in 1948. So again, politics, military, ideology, uh, and again, it's you know there is this sort of a paradoxical I would say connection between the Betar movement. And fascist Italy right by the time when uh, Mussolini adopted the racial laws which excluded Jews from uh, uh, sort of Italian society uh, I- again e- eventually these laws were disattended and it's only with the Nazi occupation of Italy that these laws were you know picked up and Jews suffered the consequences but it really shows also this uh, sort of a paradox and uh, the link between Beitar and fascist organizations but We'll leave yes, just,
2: uh, I mentioned, I think uh, uh, Dan Tamir wrote about uh, the connection between uh, the revisionists and the and, and fascists. Uh, he had some research, and, and I also mentioned a recently published book of Shaul Adar in English. It was published in UK about uh, Beitar, Jerusalem, more contemporary, recent years. and, and But he tells us, he starts from the mandate period, uh, and he, he shed light on, on on the club and its political aspects. and. Uh, also very recommended.
3: Yeah, and it shows that in every country, I mean, I would say almost inevitably football teams have political connections, uh, uh, whether, uh, you know, whether it's a Labour Party, Socialist or Right-Wing, and uh, there are expressions of uh, social classes or religious organization. I mean, uh, if we look at Turkey, which is another country where uh, football teams are essentially politicized to the point that, you know, they can be distinguished between pro or against... uh, you know, the current regime and so forth was in Spain between Real Madrid and Barcelona. One essentially was the team of Franco and the other was the opponent. So it's a fascinating uh, sort of uh, history to read through the lenses of football. I have one last question, very much about the legacy. What is the legacy of sort of the British and, you know, and football in general uh, after the the end of the British mandate?
2: Well, I would say... If we just you know through the sport lens, so the, the British succeed in, in implementing this game. It's the most popular game in Israel, although we're not so good at it. Jews and Arabs alike. No, we're not good. We're not get the hint. We're not under, we just refuse to let it go. But there's no competition. It's the most popular game here. And I think it is the legacy of the British. Uh, I, it's a question, if you know, if they were not here, what would happen and what was the place of football? But they were, and it football, it, it, it's a British thing. Uh, you cannot deny it. Back then, it, it, the place where the football was born. Uh, so I think in, in terms of football, uh, the legacy is, is quite clear. But, uh, you know, there, there's a lot of history after 1948, what happened to Palestinian clubs in, in the West Bank, in Gaza, in Israel, in Lebanon, Syria, uh, Jordan, uh, al uh, Club, for example, the Palestinian Club in, in the refugee camp in Amman, uh, which came the, 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 the a big team, the rivalry of uh, Faisal, the, the Club of the Hashemites. Uh, uh, there are a lot of things to say, and, and actually, uh, uh, there's a lot of research, research about it. Tamir Sorek wrote about it, and Amir Ben Poat, and other researchers. Um, it, it quite, it's quite interesting, but if we jump to, to uh, today's, just last week, the, the big uh, thing in the Israel national team, uh, mona Dabur, uh, the Arab Muslim player, he you know he wrote something controversial last year in, in the uh, in Jewish Arab Palestinian Arab uh, Israeli uh, conflict in May 19, uh, uh, 21. And for the big scandal, and you know, the, the fans in the stadium of the Israeli national team booed him and they, they didn't want him to play. And now, we need to decide what he's going to do because a lot of pressure from his family to uh, resign and, and not play for the national team again. Uh, but I will say that if in the mandate period, British had to force, in many of cases, a uh, Jewish armed cooperation in football. So today, there's no necessity, necessity for that because uh, there are many Arab players in the Israeli national team. No one forced anyone to do it. They just had equal chance because and because they are good, they are playing there. And it's a, almost, you cannot find this equal uh, um, thing in, in other uh, fields in, in, in Israel, maybe just in hospital, or pharmacies, but if you look on academics, on politics, on the the high-tech, whatever, you cannot see what you see on on the football field. Uh, And the Israeli national team and the Israel uh, Premier League and everything. So I I choose to say because uh, there are some, maybe it's an optimistic take on on the situation and then the thing that got a little better than 80 years ago. This was uh, Omer enough
3: author of, and this is a rough translation, Defend the Goal, Football and Arab-Jewish Relations in Mandatory Palestine. The book has been published in Hebrew. Omer is uh, currently teaching at the University of Haifa and the Adasa Academic College in Jerusalem. Omer, thank you so much.
2: Thank you Roberto, thank you very much.
1: Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to support the podcast, Please share it with others on social media or leave a rating and review. To catch all the latest, follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Jerusalem Unplugged. Thanks, and I'll see you next time.
0: Hold up!